From the corner of Bay and Dundas in downtown Toronto, this is Like Nobody's Business, a podcast of thought leadership and business innovation. I'm Dr. Stephen Murphy, Dean of the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. Kirsten Stewart is a media executive, best-selling author, and chief strategy officer of Dipley, a leading social entertainment publisher that creates captivating content for millennials. Kirsten joined TRSM's Distinguished Council in Residence, Ralph Lean, to talk directly to TRSM students about law and business as part of the lecture series, Law, Business and Politics, The Real World. Toronto uh, Life uh, uh, plays Kirsten on their most influential Torontonians and Canadian Business Magazine top 50 business people in 2015. So thank you for inviting me. It's great to, you know, this is a, it's, it's such an energetic um, kind of uh, time right now. I think uh, there's so much that uh, in, as individuals, we kind of have access to, and when you talk about influence and talk about like how each of us can have a voice today, I think you know technology has really provided us with kind of pathways that were never there before, uh, for good or for bad. Uh, but I think when you use it for good, they're really incredibly moving and 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 really helpful in terms of bringing you your own voice. So I'm happy to talk to you, know, you guys as you look to what, how you're going to be expressing your voice, as you look to you know finalizing your education and getting out there in what I call the real world. Um, I think you know the real world kind of seeps into everybody's everyday life much more than it ever used to, and uh, it's nice to see your experiences and just love to talk to you about it. What do you make of the glass cliff as a as a point? To justify why women are not cut out or or lack the acumen to lead the um, to lead major corporations, and what can women do to avoid falling into this trap? I think it's a good question because I think you're pointing out something that's really kind of an interesting dichotomy out there, which is you know we talk a lot about the glass ceiling, but there is this thing called a glass cliff. Uh, and it's been noticed by not just me but a few other people. And in fact, I actually believe that in my career I've benefited from being willing to stand up on the glass cliff. Uh, because, and just to kind of put it into context, and when we talk to, like today, when we talk about things that are pretty gender related, like I have no um, expectation or belief that people so easily fall into buckets, um, that there's a women thing and a man thing, and that there's a this thing and a that thing. Ultimately, it's all about people and personalities, uh, but there just happens to be, you know, in the way that when you're, um, a woman in particular addressing uh, your work life and your career, uh, you, there are certain expectations that might be put on you unfairly or fairly, uh, some, mostly unfairly, um, that often get duplicated in other areas, like if you are a person of diverse background or if you just look different or sound different than what has been the typical uh, boss all these years, what people kind of picture as um, maybe the Mr. Smithers version of what what a leader looks like. Uh, so just to kind of preface all the conversation today around women and men, it's not really about the differences between women and men. It's kind of it's more along the lines of the difference of personalities. And I do think that there's a uh, a, a time right now that we're in, which is an exciting time, where we're actually breaking through the idea of stereotypes and, and models and thinking about the attributes an individual brings to leadership. 
In your book, Our Turn, you state that to be anything other than authentic will inevitably compromise your confidence. In a society where it is necessary to have gender quotas or comply and explain principles to promote equality, it seems that even the government does not have confidence in our ability to achieve success on our own. Thus, as young females in our graduating year, how do we go about bestowing confidence in not only ourselves as great leaders, but to society as a whole? Furthermore, do you believe that gender quotas may be acting as a double-edged sword, enabling women to take on positions of power, but disabling their ability to be taken seriously? Yeah. For all good reasons, you've been raised in an environment where you get told that things are pretty equal. Um, and that's a good thing. That's how I've been raising my daughters. That's what they believe. I think they're going to have a bit of a shock when they go out there and see that, unfortunately, the world hasn't changed maybe as fast as it has inside our household. Um, that we're maybe a bit off the, off the norm when it comes to what, what those women are going to experience, my daughters, when they, when they graduate. So I think it's, you know, there's, there's certain key things that you can kind of break down in your, in your leaving here and, and looking for your, your place in a career. I do think authenticity and keeping true to yourself is incredibly important, no matter who you are, because you can only feel comfortable and strong in what you're doing if you, if you are being who you want to be. Um, that authenticity, you know, comes through in everything that you do, and it is actually your, probably your biggest strength. Um, that means you can't compromise the fact that you're a woman, that you're of a certain color, that you're of a certain background, that you're like, that's, you can't hide that. That's not, and you shouldn't. You, your, your strength should come from the fact of all your experiences and what brought you here today, sitting in front of an interviewer or a new boss is, is the culmination of everything that you are and everything that you've learned along the way. Um, if some people can't deal with that, um, that becomes their loss, but it becomes your pain because you end up being the one who doesn't get the job. Uh, you end up being the one who's, who, who you know, worries about where that next paycheck is coming from or whatever, and that's not good. Uh, but you have to believe that when enough of us out there, um, and again, it's a matter of time and that gets frustrating, but when enough of us out there start changing the, the dynamics of, of how individuals are recognized, then you start to see movement and change. And I do see breaks in that, in that, in, in, in that kind of... Um, uh, in the wall that has kind of separated people according to you know gender or whatever it is that has kept them kind of categorized. I do see that people with individual abilities are starting to get recognized for those abilities as opposed to what they look like and who, what their color is and who they are. That's a good thing. And I think the more we kind of, the more we, the more we um, reward that and the more those businesses do better than those businesses who don't do that, I think you'll start to see change. As a person going out there though, you know, it's so important that you go out with that confidence and understand that you are bringing an ability that these people need. In your opinion, how should a woman carry herself in the workplace if she's surrounded with criticism and wants to move up positions? Does she continue with her goals or does she address the scrutiny and remodel her plan? You know, we do worry about the kind of, we're so open now to the kinds of criticisms that are instant because we have Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat and like there is so much more, everyone thinks they're an expert, everyone thinks they have an opinion and media has never been good in portraying women. Uh, we, they've always kind of you know, typified them and, and kind of classified them in different ways. I think though what I like to see is that in those mediums today, we actually do get communities of people fighting back. And again, even though they're not the majority of people, they're out there. And I think the more that as individuals, instead of listening to the criticism and listening to the people who are actually there to support you and bolster you and, and realize you can actually get more of them, I think that's, 
that's the only way I could get through it. And I think that's a good way to kind of approach it because you will not change the minds of you know, necessarily everybody. And those are systems that have been built for a very long time and very hard to change. But you can see those moments, like that moment I had with that young woman in the hallway as like, a, wait a second, this is actually, there, are, there, are, there is the other side to this. And I should listen to that more than I listen to the negativity. Do you believe that digital media platforms and organizations have a social responsibility to ensure that the content they're publishing is in fact credible and reliable, or do you think it should be ultimately up to the end user to determine if the content uh, that these websites are publishing is true? I don't know how even a Facebook, and I know they're going to try their best to make sure that they, they um, uh, you know, police as much as they can, but again, they can't police everything because think of all the bits of digital information that get released in every second, let alone every day. Um, it's very difficult to, to, to keep a handle on everything as people, you know, individuals, it's, it's, it's UGC content, it's user-generated user all the time now, so how do, you, how do you keep a handle on every piece of, of content that somebody around the world somewhere is uploading at any particular moment? Um, and the, the issue now is that it's not people call fake news the things that are truly fake news, but people are also calling fake news on things that they just don't agree with. So how do you as a platform police something when the question is, well, what is real and what's fake? When you're telling me something that you just don't believe in is fake, how do I know where the line is? The, the desperateness and the, the, the value of attention and the, and the desperate measures people go to get that attention is I think that that's the, the challenge right now is how do you make sure that good, um, good quality content is what rises to the top? And because you see these cycles happen through history, whether it was in the 1930s this happened, in the 1950s it kind of happened again, and I think we're seeing it now again, it was with every mode of medium change. So it was when the newspapers came out, then you had fake news. It was when television came out, you had a bunch of fake news. Now that, it's, now that, the, now that everything's on digital, you have a bunch of fake news. But it turned... It, in whatever way, it's going to be harder to wrestle in because there's going to be so many outlets involved, but I think the, the quality outweighs um, the, 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 the false news. I think in the end, like it, it seemed to have in the last generations, you're going to hope that it does again, but what mechanisms are going to have to pull to get it there are going to be really hard because it's, like I said, there's so many more pieces to try to control. But it's the rise, the, the way that you see the news organizations fighting back against people yelling fake news at them and coming up with some really good quality journalism. That is what you hope rises above the rest. How do you foresee the laws and regulations surrounding broadcasting changing uh, with the continuous developments in technology and the introduction of new forms of media? Do you believe that newer forms of media, such as Netflix, should be regulated under broadcasting law or remain as they are? Um, I'm going to say something controversial here and say that all broadcasting should not be regulated. Like, not in that way. Not in the kind of Canadian content type um, regulatory way that prescribes how many hours of this and, how, and what qualifies as Canadian and what doesn't qualify as Canadian. And I'll, I'll tell you why. We have such opportunities in these platforms to create some really cool and interesting content that I believe if they had been regulated in the same way that traditional television was, it never would have been made. Um, and we can have arguments about what, what is Canadian, and it's like there's the system which is like six points out of ten and ten out of ten, and it's like how Canadian is Canadian. I think in the end we, we're at a point now where consumers are, are educated enough, um, we have talent enough in this country 
to be able to t tell our stories without being prompted by regulation to do so. Given your experience, how do you think we can tackle today's job economy? How should educational inst institutions and students adapt to the changing environment? If you go 10 years back, from and, and the, you wouldn't have even thought that there would be a company named Google and that a company named Google would be worth $1,000 a share. So this pace and our world is moving so quickly that my only advice to her, and that would be the same advice I'd give to anybody who's looking at what they're going to do in their careers, is again, understand what you're good at. At the same time, understanding what you're good at and what motivates you and what, you've, what you're trained in, you can also see how you can apply that into fields you never even thought of. So you really have to keep an open mind about what that means. And I'll give you a good example. There's a lot of journalists out there right now who find themselves out of work. There's, there's a lot of competition, a lot going on in, in the journalism field. A lot of new graduates are coming out. And you know, there's, there's not every job for every person. But what I'm seeing is a transition where a lot of journalists are understanding that their, their ability to, to tell story, so their ability to build narrative, their ability to understand um, uh, people, people's stories and to be able to translate them, that means you can do things that aren't just strictly journalism. And they've been looking at things like uh, the, the former um, uh, editor of the Globe and Mail is currently working at the RBC, being their head of innovation in terms of digital and communication. You know, that's, you know, the, uh, I've seen a lot of journalists take those kind of jobs at PR companies or, like, again, it's that, under, that ability to build a narrative that they studied and they feel they're good at. It doesn't ha didn't have to be, in that very strict sense, a media job or a, a journalism job. They could think of using that somewhere else. So I think what I did was I took my interest in kind of figuring out what motivates people to communicate and how they communicate with each other and took that in a world where we've gone from media to digital and just understood that it's the same skills, you just have to figure out how to fit them in the new world. So you have to always be constantly looking around at the world around you. Uh, schools can never move fast enough just because of the basis of how you build curriculum and how you build um, everything that supports it in terms of the resources and teachers and, and, and the, the, everything from textbooks. So, we can't ever move school as fast as you can, or education as fast as you can move the, the workforce out there, but you can still take from it the basics of what you've learned and transfer it into the new workforce. You just have to think about how this fits in the new space. My question was about women's sports and how you see us developing that into something that receives the same type of attention that men's sports does. The, if the argument is, um, women's sports are less valued than men's sports because of the attendance or because of the willingness to pay for them. There are certain sports that you can see that now um, getting equalized, like, like tennis, like soccer, Olympic soccer, things like that. So I think um, awareness is incredibly um, important in driving the, the value of women's sports. We need to make sure that women's sports is is seen and available in a way that men's sports is, because if you don't know it exists, you're not going to be able to build popularity for it. So it's, it's difficult because you're dealing with a, you know, with a, with a media industry that itself values certain, certain sport and male sport over, over female sport. You need to actually get in there and, and make women's sport as available as men so that people start falling in love with it and they create that, they have, you have that connection with it. So it, it's a difficult challenge, it's a huge one, uh, but I think it's one that we can start looking at the sports where it's been successfully done, like in tennis, like you have a superstar like Serena, 
uh, or her sister Venus, and you know you see that they sell out the stadium just as much as a Djokovic or a, or an Andy Murray does. That's good. Like we start seeing that 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 equivalence and that that creates a value value out there. But we have to see what did they do to what what environment what created that environment and how did that happen and start looking at how we could do that in other sport as well. Did you ever have any fear that leaving these executive roles could hinder your success in the field, specifically because you were a female stepping down and taking a risk on other positions that might not pan out as well as the last one? Like I think any job change I've made has been about what is the world doing right now and where can I best use my skills? And if we get too caught up in a title um, or a, you know, the kind of, um, formal structure around a job as opposed to what you can do in that job and the kind of impact you can have, I think that's, you're selling yourself short. Like we shouldn't be so worried about titles, we shouldn't be so worried about um, you know, the kind of respect you're gonna get or whatever that, where your, where your parking spot is or like those kind of things that you worry about. Ultimately what the best currency that you can develop in yourself and your career is what impact are you having and what what satisfaction are you having and the skill set that you have in that job that you just kind of want to go for next? Like, is that something that's going to teach you something? Are you going to grow? Are you going to, uh, is this something that's going to lead to something else? Like, I think those are the kinds of questions you need to ask yourself. So while you can be completely scared because particularly in media, those jobs are so scarce and hard to find, you don't necessarily want to let them go. And I have to admit that except for the last change, I have always known which job I'm going to before I leave the job I'm in. <laughs> like I've always been headhunted or called or like whatever it is, I've always gone through a process of, I know what that next job is gonna be when I've announced I'm leaving the job that I'm in. That was the bird in the hand thing to me. So even though it might look risky making those changes, I always knew what was next. This time was the first time I didn't know what was next. On behalf of Ryerson, I wanna thank Kirsten. It was a terrific. Thank you. Thank you. Like Nobody's Business is a presentation of Ryerson University's Ted Rogers School of Management. For more information about TRSM, visit ryerson.ca forward slash Ted Rogers School. I'm Dr. Stephen Murphy. Thank you for listening.